and welcome to Big Business Briefs with me, Tracy Jones. And me, Heather Noble. And we've got a bloody good topic to talk about <laughs> this week, haven't we? We bloody well have. Yes, um, I, I'm, I'm cautious. As to, I don't know how much swearing we can do because the topic we want to talk about in today's podcast is swearing in the workplace. So Which once upon a time would be an absolute no-no. A real no-no. And, and even swearing in the podcast, we've we've sworn a few times. I, I probably have to admit it's mostly me, isn't it? Well, you are. I might have said a, a few shits here and there. Yes, but I don't <laughs> think we've gone any further than than that. No. Well, if we have, well, we, I don't know. Should we apologise because it's becoming more acceptable to swear in the workplace? Um, there was an article that Heather spotted on LinkedIn, which actually led us to a Wall Street Journal article. Work makes us swear, but should you, is the title of the article. It was written by a Rachel Feintseek in April. She's just asking, you know, is it okay now to drop the F-bomb, as she said. Is that okay? And um, that also linked on to another article in the Wall Street Journal, which was mostly behind a paywall, but I got the gist of it, which was essentially blaming lockdown, the pandemic for the increase of swearing in the workplace because of the blurring of the boundaries between personal and professional life. And then that has been a breeding ground for more swearing. But I thought that you spotting that article was really timely because I had actually noticed myself occasionally stepping over the line with the swear word at work, whereas I wouldn't have done before. And I wasn't sure where that had come from. Um, I spoke to a colleague and said, I'm really sorry. I I just noticed that I I might have used the F word. I might have done shit a few times that week. All perfectly reasonable, I think, in the situation in which I was swearing. (laughs) It wasn't directed at somebody. It wasn't said in anger. It was more a a release of tension in in a, a particular situation. Um, and I said, oh, I don't know where this has come from. He said, do you think it's because you've become more relaxed with us? You, you know us better because I've been there for just over four years now. And that might be it. But I, I didn't think I felt unrelaxed before. So to feel relaxed enough to swear, to use profanities. But well, you wouldn't do it in front of a client, would you? No. And I wouldn't do it in front of somebody who I thought would potentially be offended by it. Yeah, I have to admit, it depends. So I was I was coaching somebody for the first time a few weeks ago, and they're very senior, very senior person within an organisation, and she used a swear word. And in the context of what we were talking about, I then repeated back that swear word, you know, further in the conversation. But I don't think I would have instigated it. And I think also, so if I'm training... You were the service provider, weren't you? I was the service provider. Some trainers do, don't they? I've seen it. And it's like almost a shock tactic or a, you know, I don't know. But whenever I've seen it, it, I don't think it's ever really paid off where, you know, where somebody comes in all like, you know, gung-ho and like, this is how it's going to be. We're going to F in this and F in that. And I just go, oh, I'm not sure that's... No. No, I was not quite me. No, I think you can achieve that without the need to swear. But then again, I've had people in certain settings who have used swear words to challenge me to see whether or not I'll play ball. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like they're trying to judge me as, you know, who is this woman? You know, she 
some stuck-up sort of whatever, and so they use language to try and make out that I'm... Different. Different in some way, and then I'd be more likely to not necessarily use the language that they've used, but I might say bloody. Yeah. Just to show, look, I know... I know, I know all the swear words, all right? Yeah, thanks. <laughs> and I can use them. I probably use them when I go home yes. later on. Yeah. yeah. Also, for me, if I look back on my career, a lot of the jobs I've had have been in very male-dominated industries. And I always know that when I'm being accepted for me and I'm not seen as the woman in the group yeah. is when the men revert to how they would speak to each other. So if I'm included in a conversation with lots of effing and jeffing, yeah. then I'm part of that. You know, so so often I've felt that like people have made an effort to be polite in a conversation because I'm a woman. Yeah. But yes, I, I know I know exactly what you mean. And 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 that's great. However, there are a lot of men who don't swear. And so, you know, we're just human beings. It's like it's, it goes, it's like the whole open, open, holding the door open for a woman, right? Well, I hold the door open for anybody yeah, because it's the right thing to do, just in the same way that yeah. Nathan and Jeffin is probably the right thing to do most of the time. Yeah. Reading in this article, it says that um, one of the commentators, uh, Nick Mazing, Centio's Director of Research, um, he says that business formality is on the way out. But then later on, somebody, um, Nancy Halpern, um, a leadership consultant, says that if you get, if you deploy a curse word at the wrong moment or in the wrong company, it can swiftly derail your career. I nearly said screw up your career. <laughs> screw your career. Um, and she suggests looking two rungs above you in the organisation to determine what language is acceptable. I just thought that was a little bit like, oh, that's just looking out for career. What about people around you who feel uncomfortable with it? Can't you just read the room? Yeah, it's not a hierarchical you, bad, you don't bad like, language, is yeah, it? Yeah, I felt a bit like, okay, so if my boss's boss uses swearing and even if it's inappropriate, it's okay for me to... I don't think that gives me the no. the green light to use it. Um, but anyway, yeah, she says, look on the organisation chart and see what's um, acceptable. Actually, this this is a good point. Decouple swearing from complaining so that you don't come across as doubly negative. Sometimes I, I do think a well-deployed swear word just lets... Yeah, I'm going to use one now, and apologies if anybody doesn't like the swear word, but I find one swear word that really lets off steam for me is bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> a okay. well-placed bollocks really just yeah. lets a bit of tension out, and then I can move on. But I wouldn't use it in the sense of I was talking to somebody and complaining about something. It's Telling them they're a, talking bollocks. Yeah, yeah, I don't think I've ever said that to somebody's face. <laughs> <laughs> And another good point to make is don't use it in an email. You can never take it back in an email. And don't use it when addressing a large group because you can it loses its context in both of those situations. If yeah, you you're just, in a yeah. small group of people, you can read the room a bit better. A big group of people, you don't know exactly how everybody's going to... And you can't judge everybody's reaction to it, can you? No, I, I, think, I, think, I think as a rule of thumb... Don't be the first person to do it. If somebody 
I mean, never swear at somebody. No, I think no. you're just asking for trouble. Yeah, that's aggressive, isn't that's it? That's very aggressive. Yeah. Although I'm sure that it's fairly tempting sometimes if you're sending a text message to somebody. But <laughs> 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 uh, it says here as well, um, Danette Evert Johnson, the provost of Kalamazoo College, um, has researched swearing at work and. Uh, Danette says that done right, swearing can provide an emotional release, psychologically girding you to withstand pain and cementing team ties, which I can sort of get that. You know, if you're on a group, something's gone wrong and you maybe just want to all acknowledge that that thing yeah. is not so great. Yeah. yeah. And then move on. Yes, it could. Yeah, it can be used to draw. I mean, I'm sure that it in, in the right context... It can be a way of bringing everybody together and saying, right, okay, let's take this to basics. It was this. You know, if you say it was shit, right, okay, so, you know, we messed up there. It it was a crock of shit, okay. Yeah. Everybody kind of knows rather than um, we messed up there and it was less than desirable. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, know, or or what, and then somebody else is, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, it didn't didn't meet the mark or... There are some times when it's right. You've okay, got to call clear, shit shit, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, clearly, let, let's make no bones about it. It's not open to interpretation. That was shit. Yeah. Or crap. Or whatever. Yeah, so one rule um, that um, this lady here, Agnes Nassanis. Some great names. Yeah, brilliant names. Uh, she says the rule is uh, never be the first one to let an expletive slip and never do it in front of the bosses. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I think that's fair enough. Of course, the one thing that I'm not sure about, because I don't hang out with young people that often, but I don't know if amongst younger groups, swear words... I mean, once upon a time, there was no swearing on the TV, no swearing on the radio. Yeah. You know, even after the watershed, it was pretty uh, tame. But now, comedy... All sorts of words get dropped just like normally. So I think it's more, it's probably, never mind at work, it's just, for whatever reason, it's more common. Is it? I don't Yeah, I suppose it, so. Yeah, if, 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 if we were hanging around with 19-year-olds, but would they if, be using swear words? In certain words? workplaces, though, I think it's always been there. You go to heavy industry, yes. and male-dominated industries, they've probably... Yes. Well, the yeah, the phrase yeah. "swear like a trooper" yeah. comes from somewhere, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, but it, but then I, uh, yes, of course. But I think then it goes to those those boundaries that you were talking about. Like, I was doing some work recently in a manufacturing setting, very male dominated. The younger men swore a lot, and the older guys, if they swore, they would pull them up and they go, "Hey, language, yeah, language," and you know they were kind of like. Right, like, like, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, what do you mean, sort of thing. The interesting one here, uh, Mackenzie Mortensen-Ross works for a semiconductor company. Uh, Mackenzie is a woman um, and says she's often the only woman in the virtual room during meetings. And she says that she feels part of the scenery until somebody drops an F-bomb. Yeah. And then all of a sudden there's a chorus of apologies directed towards her. And her response then is, you never have to effing excuse yourself to me. Right, okay. And then everyone relaxes because they all laugh. Yeah. I'm not sure I would do that. I'm not sure. I don't know. 
Because I can see why why that works for her. But it, it depends in the context, doesn't it? Yeah. I maybe wouldn't say you never have to effing excuse yourself. I might just say you, you don't have to excuse yourself in front of me. But I suppose she's demonstrating that she also swears. I don't know. But the, the one thing I would say is that I would rather somebody actually told me exactly what they thought about a situation using whatever language yeah. they needed to use than risk me not really understanding <laughs> how vexed they are with a given situation. Not with me as a person, but with the situation that we're in. The same lady, Mackenzie, did you read further on where she's actually got a bomb-shaped paperweight yes. on her desk <laughs> with a big letter F on yes. it, yeah. representing the F-bomb, one yeah. assumes, yeah. Yes. But she says it's the swearer's responsibility to read the room and immediately apologise if the listener bristles. I wonder if you can read the room before then. <laughs> yeah, because, well, you've got it wrong then, haven't you? So yeah, it's a bristling. I don't, you're on the back it's, foot, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, it's, it's too late. Yeah, yeah I, I don't think there's a definite answer. I think it depends on certain situations. It can be quite... Um, I remember the first time I heard my mum say the F word. <laughs> And it was a shock. She's like, oh, so you really took notice. Yeah. She'd only stalled the car, but she was very annoyed with herself. Oh, yeah. Um, That's not what your mum does. But um, so it can be used to shock people in the... Yeah. Right, oh, she must mean it because she, she never, never swears. swears. Yeah. That's a really good point, actually. So if you keep it in your top pocket and just bring it out. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't fling it around all, all, the time. all the time. Yeah, just save it when you really mean it. Power punch. Okay, fair enough. Swearing at work. We'll leave it up, up to you to decide what to do. Um, but that's our um, thoughts on it. And then we're going to review a book called Crisis Proof. I do like the cover of this book. It's very colourful. It looks like a pink bomb. Explosion. It looks like an F-bomb. No, it doesn't. It looks like a paint explosion. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Crisis Proof, How to Prepare for the Worst Day of Your Business Life by Jonathan Hemus. It's available on Kindle Unlimited. And the reason I wanted... I did make some people worried, so I posted the fact that I'd read this on Instagram. Because um, I, I, I like to keep track of all the books that I've read because my memory's not serving me quite so well. So one of the places I record it is Instagram and I'll put a little note as to what I thought of it. And um, if anybody's interested, they can also read it as well. Um, and I'd put on here, really relevant to the work I'm doing at the moment. And one friend <laughs> private messaged me and went, is everything okay? Yeah, I'm just looking at business continuity plans at work. She said, oh, phew, I thought you were having a crisis yes. at work. Yeah. Said, no, no, I'm planning for a potential yes. crisis. Yes. And this book was actually good timing because it, it was quite useful as we were doing that exercise. So I'm sorry, I've piggybacked my work onto the podcast. Heather. Well, it won't be the first time. I don't suppose it'll be the last. <laughs> don't suppose it'll no, be the last. No, it won't be. Have you read it? I've, I've read, read. I've skimmed. Skimmed read it. it. Yes. Yeah. So I've read most of it. Okay. Because it was quite relevant. Um, and the first thing I want to say is, it is. A, it's not a book that's meant for crisis manager professionals. If I think if you're a professional, this is too lightweight for you. If you've been trained in crisis management and you know you've been doing risk management and business continuity plans, emergency procedures for twenty years, this is. Too easy for you, I imagine. 
Ada said at the beginning, it's designed for people who have had crisis management duties thrust upon them. Okay, fair enough. And um, that is sort of like a little bit of, it's not my main duty at work, but it's something where I've been collaborating with a colleague to get a, a piece of work done. It's not his main duty either. So we've just come together and we are people who've essentially had crisis management duties thrust upon us. That said, the one thing that I felt was really missing was what happens if you are part of crisis management? The book didn't really cover how you um, approach it all. If if you're actually there, as a, so you've written the crisis management plan, you've done the business continuity plans and the emergency procedures, and it talks all about testing them and trying them out and everything. But if you're actually part of it as well, it's very difficult to have that distance. So the guy that wrote it is the head of group business resilience for Cathay Pacific Airways. So he's in a position where he can then put this plan to people and test them on it. Whereas I'm in a position where I'm working with a colleague. We've written a plan. We are part of the plan. You're too close to it. How can we test it? Yeah, mm. we're too close. And I felt like a little bit towards the end of the book, I just lost a little bit of my you know, the usefulness of it because I wasn't going to be able to be completely separate from the test because I needed to be tested too. So I needed some guidance as to, okay, so if I've written this and I've been involved in writing but I'm in it, how do I then go about getting somebody else to test it for me? I just felt like a little bit, maybe I needed to have read, the maybe the, the last chapter caught me out, I didn't see the last chapter. But does he not talk about, it's a bit like a backup, isn't it? So, you know, you have a data backup in the hope that you never need to use it. But the number of times you go to an organisation and say, oh yeah, we back up, oh yeah, yeah. But have you ever restored from a backup to find out whether it works? Yes. So I think what you're talking about is, as a minimum, you are aware that you're not the best person to scrutinise your own crisis management plan. Yeah. Therefore, there must be somebody else. It would be helpful to seek out somebody else within the organisation who can critique it because yeah. you're too close to it. Yeah, so I've got plenty of people I can get to read it. That's fine. I now need somebody to do, run a practical exercise and test it Yeah, yeah. where I can actually be in the test. Yes, part of it. Yeah. yeah. And I just, I was wondering, and that's the only bit I would say mm. on there. I just needed a little bit more as to now, okay, so I'm still leading the whole thing. Yeah. I'm still involved in, the, you know, like sort of the, the whole project, sort of spearheading it with a colleague. But I now need to know how to like get somebody to test it for me. Yeah. Does okay. that make sense? Yes, it does. However, yeah. I found the book incredibly useful and I made lots of notes and I shared some of the, um, notes with people and you know what was really really satisfying one of the examples of really good crisis management was the company i work for oh they actually had it as um as an example oh wow so when the company i work for um faced a major cyber attack they handled it in a textbook, literally textbook fashion. And he actually mentions it in the book here. So I, I was able to share that with my colleagues and go, look at this. I, I can't take any of the credit for that. I was part of that whole dealing with it, but only at a very, very low level, not at the you know, the corporate level where it was dealt with. So but it all, yeah, quite but it all, pleasing. But it all yeah, it all cascades up and down, doesn't it? Yeah. And and that's actually 
then what I took from that was, okay, so yeah, clearly my company does have plenty of layers that can deal with crisis. My thing now is to refer upwards, as you say, mm. and go, can you test this for us? We put this in yeah. place, can you do the test and take it up the layers? I think one of the other things that um, he talks within the book about um, the World Trade Center, yeah. famously, um, there was a guy who, a guy called Rick Rascola, who was head of security at Morgan Stanley, based in the World Trade Center. And he had identified that the basement of the towers would potentially be a target, not not considering obviously what yeah. unfortunately happened with them, them flying the planes in. Um, anyway, he um, there was an incident in 1993, and so he learned from that, and he he used to keep testing the process of evacuating his team. And to the point that he believed in it so strongly that on the day of the Twin Towers incidents, when the message was coming out saying, stay in your offices, he didn't. He, he told no. his staff to leave. And if that hadn't have happened, then they would have suffered more losses. So I think you, you, have, a, you have a plan in place. When the crap hits the fan, it takes great balls to say, no, we're sticking with it. Because, yeah. you know, in a, in a panic, in, a, in an incident, the temptation to go, oh, I don't know, but actually to say, no, absolutely, we're going to go in. We know this stuff. Yeah. And we're going to fly in the face of And off. that's exactly the point he makes in the book, and he, he puts it really, really well. With examples like that, is that in the middle of a crisis is not the good time to be making new decisions. Yeah, yeah. You need to have been making those sorts of decisions before. Yeah. But rightly so, you're unlikely to have made that exact decision before. Yes. Yeah. As, as he says here, you, you can't have a step-by-step instruction manual for every conceivable scenario. No, no. But you have to choose some big meaty ones to know how you would respond to those. And then when the other scenario comes along... Choose the one that is closest yes. to that and use that to guide you as you make decisions. Uh, interesting point he makes. You know, you, you you only choose a small number to to do the scenario planning on. And say so you could do hundreds, but choose a small number of really big ones because then after that, hopefully, the things that you do deal with are smaller. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He he also. Um, one thing that, you know, we like quotes, don't we? But at the beginning of each section, there'll be various quotes. And he was talking in one section um, about, you know, th- things happen. And as you've just said, they don't, they're not always predictable. Um, but he, he says, never let a good crisis go to waste. Yeah, learn from so it. So learn yeah. from it and learn from it and build on that. You're much more likely to be able to scrutinise when you're planning what are the little what are the small things that could go wrong that together add up to dealing with a big problem and i think the chapter 4 is really good point is how to get senior buy in how to get the you know your senior managers to buy in because as with everything if you if it isn't coming from the top and that support and that valuing whatever it is that you're doing it, it's a big thing to do to, to prepare for a crisis. If your senior managers don't think that's valuable, it's, they're, they're not going to buy into it. A crisis comes, they're probably not even going to know what they need to do and where they fit in. Mm. And actually, those people at the senior need to be leading that crisis response, don't they? 
Yeah, and I think the important point to make is that this isn't about preventing crisis yeah. <laughs> because things are going to happen. Yeah. It's how you behave. And he talks about yeah, it's the, it's those early moments when something has gone wrong that have the power to give a good, a, a, as positive an outcome as possible or for it all to just run away with you. It's that initial response that's, that's true of the public looking at your organisation, your staff looking at how you're dealing with the crisis, etc. Yeah. Because headless chicken mode doesn't bode well in any way, shape or form. Yeah, the, the one about, um, you say, the press asking questions and the local community, how quickly the wrong story can get out mm. there. And then what you're coming back is you're rebutting stories. That's not a good position to be in, is it? So having somebody who's got the authority for starters and also the skills to actually communicate in a crisis is really important yeah yeah it's i think it's a i think it's a good book as you say just from i haven't read it to the level of detail that you have but But it's easy yeah it gives you really good templates in terms of like these are the roles you need to have um and little um really useful little tidbits like don't pre-assign a single specified individual to a particular role because they're a single point of failure and they might not be available or they might be involved in the crisis, you yes. know, that something might have happened to them. So, you know, be, be a bit more uh, generic and so that you're not relying on one person yeah. to deal with everything. So it says focus not on the people but on the roles and then other people can move into yeah. the roles. I thought that was really good because a lot of the business continuity plans you look at, you know, you've got named people. But you have to keep that up to date for a start and people move jobs, don't they, and contact numbers change. And as you say, people are on holiday or they could be part of the crisis, whether that's an accident or a death, you know, somebody dying within an organisation. Oh, sorry, we can't can't run this crisis management. Yeah, yeah, the person who's died, that industrial (laughs) injury is uh, is the person. Anyway, yes, crisis proof. Really nice book. It's not for the people who already know this stuff. It is an introduction, but a very good one, I would say. And particularly, good grief, if you've got Kindle Unlimited, why wouldn't you just uh, have a quick skim through it and see what you can pull from there? That I mean, and that applies to you. You might be thinking, oh, well, I've only got a small business and I don't need a full team. But actually, if you're running a small business with, even if it's only one person five people, ten people, if something goes wrong, you still need a plan as how to handle it, always remembering that during a crisis is not the best time to be deciding what to do what during to do. a crisis. Yeah. 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 So that's Crisis Proof, How to Prepare for the Worst Day of Your Business Life by Jonathan Hemus. Excellent. Now, we prattled on a couple of weeks ago. I think we've had a couple of weeks off, haven't we? Yeah. Um, life's got in the way. Uh, but we were talking about making a change where instead of looking at a business leader or a business guru, the word guru that we used to use a lot, that we... We haven't used guru for ages. Oh, no. Well, no. We, we won't, you know, because we're moving we're on to... We're not gurus. No. To looking at different companies. And so this week... We'd done some previous research into the new chief exec of Chester Racecourse, but we thought we'd look at the organisation as an entity. And you went to company's house, as you often do, 
and you found out some really, really interesting bits of information. Well, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm so glad we took this approach because I, I, I disappeared down a few rabbit holes. Um, first of all, there's a, there's a restaurant um, in the um, Chester um, race course called 1539. No, I've been there. I've, I've eaten there. I've done there. I've been to events there. the architect's firm that I used to work for. Oh, right. My last paid job. But anyway, I didn't realise what 1539 stood for, but that was when it was established. The year the race course was established. Yeah, 1539, the original one. Um, but then I went to company's house, and actually the this particular business, the Chester Race Company Limited, was incorporated on the 21st of November, 1892. Wow. And I thought, oh, well, they won't have the original documents there, surely. But lo and behold, if you go to filing history, the original memorandum and articles of association are available to see. And you've got a list of the first directors, which include the Duke of Westminster, Sir Philip Henry Brian Gray Edgerton of Walton Park, Baronet, no less, mm. Lord Arthur Hugh Grosvenor, presumably brother, maybe, of uh, His Grace, the Duke yes. of Westminster, yeah. Salisbury Kyneston Mannering Esquire from Otley Park. You're going to visit Otley Otley Hall, yeah, they've got some gardens, so I imagine it's all the, connected. The hall in is way. in the park somewhere, yes, I imagine. Yeah. The Right Honourable Llewellyn Neville Vaughan, Lord Mostyn from Mostyn Hall in Hollywell. Robert Charles de Grey Viner, Esquire from York, near York, my friend, yeah, near York. Sir Henry Watkin Williams Wicks, Baronet from Winstay in Rewabon. Reginald Kyneston Mannering Esquire from Underdale, near Shrewsbury, and Henry Enfield Taylor Esquire from Chester. These are all the original directors. And what's great to see is all their original signatures are there as well and the people that witnessed this. So it's a real document available from 21st of November, 1892. When you look at all of those people, they're all fairly local apart from... The York guy. The York guy. So I don't know what... I suppose we could delve further and find out why him. But yeah, it's a lov- it is a lovely document. And um, yeah, there are various different committees, etc. So as you can imagine, all of the filing history, it doesn't go all the way back to 1892. So um, that's the oldest document on there. And I think the other documents only go back to the 1980s. Um, but it's still eight pages worth of documents available. Yeah, and I saw, I can't find it now, that if the removal of directors, so they talk about um, you could be removed if all of all of the other directors voted for you to leave, uh, you can resign, or what was the terminology? If you become... Imbecile, was it? Yeah, yes, become an imbecile. <laughs> I imagine there was quite a tight definition of that. <laughs> Maybe not. I know that's how um, a few husbands got rid of their wives in the past, wasn't it? Send them to uh, to a mental institution. Um, anyway, so the company now, their website is pretty good. So chester-races.com. In their about section, it gives you a bit of um, you know, where, where the company's at now. So it actually owns uh, Chester Racecourse and Bangor on D Racecourse. 
and they've just taken over the long-term operating contract of Musselburgh um, Racecourse in Scotland. Um, they own the Holiday Inn Express Do on, they? on the course, ah. um, and two restaurants on the course, 1539, which now I know was when the course was first established, and the White Horse Pub. They also own Common Hall Social, a bar in Chester. I didn't know they own that. And then they also do um, on-course catering. They operate that, and uh, they do banqueting and conferencing um, with this. Um, so they they cater for the race meetings, but um, banqueting and conferencing also at Chester Town Hall and Liverpool Cathedral, amongst others. Uh, quite an interesting um, setup there, and much wider than I thought. They also say on their about page that a recent economic impact study reported that Chester Race Company generates £54.1 million of expenditure per annum in the local economy and supports 974 gross full-time equivalent jobs. 24% of the employment and the recreation centre alone. So quite quite interesting. They, they, they've got a, a nice little diagram. I don't know if you saw that on their website, Heather. Um, but right at the centre is horse racing. That's the core of this infographic they've got. And then around it, they've got the um, hospitality, hotel, gaming, Chester Bet is a, a part of what they do. Outdoor events, Chester Polo Club, um, external functions, the restaurants, conferencing and banqueting. So, But at the core of all of that is horse racing. The um, the chief, One of the reasons why we started looking in the first place was that they appointed a new chief exec in November last year, um, a lady called Louise Stewart. And uh, she used to work at... Alexandra Park and Palace in London, which is oh, the yes, old that's why she caught our attention. Yes, yeah, the old broadcasting place. But she uh, and she did a lot uh, from tourism, etc. Um, when she was at Ali Pali, but the um, she's also worked at Visit England uh, and worked at regional development agencies in uh, North Yorkshire. Um, so I think her big thing is the whole tourism side of things. I would imagine that the racing bit kind of takes care of itself because there's a whole racing community and there's a presence for that course. But actually, it's the logistics of how you take a leisure um, organisation in different directions. Because once upon a time, the race, you know, families wouldn't go to the races. You know, it would just be mostly blokes or, you know, the the racing community. But actually, it's much more of a social thing now. So they're doing lots more things to get more people coming along. Mm. So that's a big tourism thing, I think. Well, um, the reason for this new CEO was um, it's well reported in the local press and in the horse racing press. But also there was mention of it in the latest statutory accounts. It clearly was quite an important event. And that was they had to terminate the contract of their CEO, Richard Thomas, which they describe as extremely disappointing. Um, It says in the statutory accounts that following a thorough investigation by forensic accountants, it was confirmed that Mr. Thomas had misused company resources to support personal projects. It goes on to say that the company had successfully pursued Mr. Thomas for the return of the amounts misappropriated. 
Um, and obviously, they've had to give some assurances as to how they will review their practices and make sure that they learn from lessons from that having happened. Do but, we know how much money it was? Yeah, I'm not so sure. I did try to find, I had a look through a few articles, didn't, didn't find any more details. Um, and the majority of the articles were very vague, as um, I think the, the detail in the stat accounts was no more in the newspaper articles right. than whatever the uh, company had released. Um, so not a lot was available on that. But even with all of that going on and with COVID, they actually still managed to turn a profit in 2020. I'd be interested to see uh, what their 2021 accounts are like. They'll be due out in a few months. Um, but for the year ended 31st of December 2020, in amongst all the, f- the fact that they could have no race meetings and, and, and yeah. their restaurants and bars, they did manage to flex um, and uh, they managed to make a small operating profit. They've had some insurance um, to cover loss of income and they also had to flex their workforce as well. I think, you know, impressive that they were able to manage the business so that it survived through all of that. Um, if you look at the accounts, um, so turnover from racing in 2020 was still 4 million, but that was compared to nearly 17 million wow. the previous year. So their, their actual total turnover has gone down from 32 million in 2019 to just over six million in 2020. Uh, they did have 11 million pounds of insurance claims, um, a little bit um, of money from grants, but a lot of that will have been, you know, confident management and mm. uh, you know doing the right thing, whatever they needed to do. I wonder how many staff they have because I would imagine, you know, a lot of the um, the race day work will be. Not zero hours contracts, hopefully, but you know, there's not racing going on every day. And yeah, so on their um, on their about page, it says they support nine hundred and seventy four gross full time equivalent jobs. I don't know if that is the current situation, but you would think so if that's on their about page. Mm. Whether that's how many they actually employ, I don't know. I suppose because they've got Musselburgh as well, haven't they? So they've got yeah. three race courses. There'll be three lots of hospitality. Uh, and just quickly, back on to Richard Thomas, the only other thing that I found in the press um, was was that in 2014, he won um, Cheshire Business Awards Business Person of the Year. Oh dear. So it's a bit of fall, fall from grace there. Top prize of the night at Chester Cathedral um, went to Racecourse Chief Executive Richard Thomas. Um, and then quickly, um, just having a look, it established 1539, um, the race course is now officially recognised by the Guinness Book of World Records as the oldest race course in the world still in operation. Because, of course, the 1539 was when it was started, but the, the date of incorporation, as you say, was 18, whatever it was, 1892. So Yeah. Yeah. It, it um, they've got a section about the history of the course on their website, and it talks about how it all started off with a race on Shrove Tuesday or something. So I think it, it wasn't it wasn't the beast that we see today. <laughs> Just one race. The Rudy was once underwater. Yeah. Um, because in the Roman times, just uh, vague memories. Were the walls sort of like were the docks 
along the walls in some places. The Roman harbour. Yeah. Yeah, the River Dee reached the city walls. This was the Roman harbour until the river silted up, making navigation impossible. Yeah, they decided um, that horse racing would replace the Shrove Tide football match. Um, which was banned in 1533. I'm just reading over your shoulder there. Can you just scroll back up? You're telling me somebody called Henry G. Yeah. yeah. Gigi. Henry Gigi, yeah, exactly. He was the mayor of Chester at the, the time. The mayor of Chester. Yeah. Yeah, the Shrove Tuesday football match was banned. And the name Rudy is derived of rude eye, meaning the island of the cross. Uh, There's a sandstone statue within the centre of the course. Um, which was formerly a timber cross. Fascinating. So there we go. That's our first company review profile. Yeah, but we're going to have to come up with something equally historic next week. <laughs> I wonder if I wonder what is the oldest. Well, that's just a Google job, isn't it? The oldest yeah. incorporated company. Yeah, in the UK. Okay, challenge on. <laughs>